Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly look at the world of evidence. Coming up on this week's episode, as kids go back to school, winter bugs are surging and pressure mounts on health services. We look at two trials which aim to reduce antibiotic prescribing for respiratory tract infections in nursing homes and in primary care. Juan brings us an update on prescribing medicinal cannabis for pain based on a recent rapid recommendation published in the BMJ and linked systematic review and meta-analysis. And finally, in COVID news, how likely are you to be admitted or die from COVID after one or two vaccinations? I'm Helen MacDonald, Research Integrity Editor at BMJ, and I'm joined by Joe Ross, our US editor, who's also a primary care physician. Hi, Joe. Hi, Helen. Great to see you. And our esteemed guest, Juan Franco, who's calling in from Buenos Aires. He's editor-in-chief of BMJ EBM, Evidence-Based Medicine, and also a family physician. Hi, Juan. Hi, Helen. Hi, everyone. So it's getting a bit cold here over in the UK, and we're recording on the 27th of September and out west in Bath, where I am. It pretty much feels like the first day of autumn. It's pretty uh, windy. There are lots of brown, crispy leaves blowing around. Um, I don't know what it's like where you are. It's probably getting hotter, isn't it, where you are? Yes, yes. Wonderful weather here. Mm. How about with you, uh, Joe? The weather here is finally getting gorgeous. We're just uh, getting those cold mornings that, that warm up during the day. And are you starting to see winter bugs? No, uh, not so much. We're mostly seeing turning leaves, which is the, the joy of living in the northeast of the United States. Okay, well, good. Well, enjoy that until the winter bugs arrive. So in preparedness. I did get my food shot yesterday. So I, I am getting prepared for the winter bugs. It's rare that I feel that we put out um, research at the BMJ, which is sort of timely in terms of the seasons. But this to me really, uh, really feels like it is. This is a, a pair of trials from Europe looking at lower respiratory tract infections in the community. The first one evaluates whether C-reactive protein testing at the point of care or CRP point of care testing safely and safely is an important word reduces antibiotic prescribing for lower respiratory tract infections in nursing home residents it's a pragmatic cluster randomized control trial um, in 11 nursing homes in the Netherlands and I guess what it's adding is that nursing home angle um, because in a linked editorial you can read that actually the evidence for using CRP testing in general in primary care is already reasonably strong. They compared the use of CRP point of care testing with usual care and the primary outcome measure was antibiotic prescribing at the initial consultation and then looking at other outcomes including recovery and mortality over those first three weeks. Overall, they found that using the CRP testing did safely reduce the amount of antibiotic prescribing compared to usual care and perhaps extends the utility of this test into that slightly different community population of nursing home residents. The second trial asked whether a point of care procalcitonin and lung ultrasound test could safely, again, reduce unnecessary antibiotic prescribing in patients with lower respiratory tract infections in primary care. So not in nursing homes this time, just people coming in to see their primary care doctor. So for people who want to remind a procalcitonin is 
a biomarker, so in effect a blood test, um, and some work suggested it's pretty sensitive and, and could be quite promising um, for differentiating bacterial and viral infections. But there isn't very much pragmatic evidence available um, on how it might be used in care. Um, and initially I thought, why are they pairing it with lung ultrasounds? But what they suggest, the authors, is that lung ultrasound has quite good specificity. So the authors are kind of wondering if you add these two things together, um, whether that will um, prove most effective. So again, this is a cluster randomised control trial. Um, it's the GPs that are ran randomised, one per um, centre. And um, the patients that they're looking at are people with acute cough who have at least one other symptom of either a history of fever for more than four days, feeling breathless, um, having tachypnea above um, 22 breaths a minute, or abnormal focal lung auscultation. And they compare three groups. They look at procalcitonin on its own, procalcitonin and lung ultrasound, and then usual care. And what they're looking at for the outcome is the proportion of people who are prescribed antibiotics four weeks later. So they included 60 GPs um, who between them saw sort of getting on for 500 patients who ranged from about 38 to 66. More of them were female, getting on for 60% were female. Um, and what they found was that compared with usual care, point-of-care procalcitonin led to about a 26% absolute reduction in the probability of being prescribed antibiotics up to 28 days later without affecting patient safety. There was some uncertainty about whether the point-of-care lung ultrasonography was a useful addition um, because the confidence intervals were still quite wide. So I guess that's left floating as a question but they they were definitely quite clear that the procalcitonin um, seemed to be a helpful thing. Before we get going on the talking points here I just wonder how are these tests uh, used where you are Juan? Uh, no in general um, for the diagnosis of lower uh, respiratory tract infections we just rely on, on clinical grounds and when available um, uh, a chest x-ray. But no, we don't, we don't usually use um, this test as point of care. Mm, what about you, Jay? Oh, well, you know, in the United States, we love tests. Anything we that can add more to the cost of taking care of somebody, we're, we love that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think in this case, you know, tests like procalcitonin and, and C-reactive protein, obviously we see them a lot, their use in the emergency department, but they're increasingly being used now as part of primary care diagnostic strategies and workshops. Like when you would see somebody, um, you know, with a, upper respiratory symptoms, uh, you'll see PCPs order these tests and, you know, follow up the results with the patient as a means of, you know, trying to better just decide when to start antibiotics. So what did you make of this evidence? Well, it's interesting. That, so that I thought the procalcitonin paper you know, was was a little bit more useful in terms of uh, both demonstrating the uh, sort of lack of utility of the lung ultrasound um, and the potential value of using procalcitonin uh, to minimize antibiotic use, right? I mean, the, the inclination is always, you see a patient, you know, it's hard to, to know, maybe, maybe you'd get an x-ray, maybe you wouldn't, um, but it, it, it 
this is a little bit of an easier way of sort of targeting, you know, when antibiotics are needed. And I think it pretty clearly demonstrates that it safely reduces antibiotic use without major concerns. I think when you're looking at diagnostic tests that prevent the use of something, you always want to know what's going to happen over the course of their management. Are they going to suffer any consequences from essentially withholding what somebody might consider necessary care? I thought the nursing home paper that looked at C-reactive protein was a little bit more mixed in the sense that as a trial, it did demonstrate that using the CRP serum blood test did minimize use of antibiotics. It seemed to do so safely. But if you start to look at some of the secondary endpoints around uh, resolution and mortality, maybe the trial wasn't big enough to detect a difference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it gets at, you know, a primary care population generally more healthy walking into a physician's office as opposed to, you know, a nursing home population where people are a bit more sick and more chronically ill. And Juan, I saw you nodding your head vigorously. So you, 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 you I think you may agree with me. Yeah, I had the same concerns regarding the confidence intervals for the secondary endpoints on safety and perhaps dealing with a more frail population. You would want more certainty that uh, using this uh, to rule out a severe infection it could be done. But uh, yes, I think they were a little bit underpowered. So if these tests were available in your centre, and I, maybe they are for you, Joe, would you, are you going to be using them this winter? Oh, well, I don't do a lot of nursing home care. So I think so. I, I, I'm saved from having to make that this more <laughs> difficult decision. Uh, but I, I, I do like the idea of increasingly using procalcitonin to minimize antibiotic use. I think the stewardship, you know, responsibility we have uh, is is hard already, right? You know, to to, to minimize antibiotic use. And this this gives us a, a tool to to help prevent, uh, you know, even wider antibiotic use. And at least in the United States, where there's a lot of demand, you know, I need an antibiotic. Uh, this this helps buttress the argument. You going to go for it, Juan? Well, I was thinking the same thing. I I think that. The implementation is tricky because you don't only have to convince the, the physician, but also the patient. So you need a lot of communication and what the test means for the patient, saying, okay, based on this test, you don't need an antibiotic, and the patient needs to agree on this, so it's tricky. Uh, but yeah, with a good implementation plan, it could be useful. Towards the end of that discussion there on antibiotic use, I think you were talking about some really interesting themes around the feasibility of implementing something in clinical care and also around the values and preferences of patients. And Juan, you've brought for discussion as our second piece this week um, something around cannabis use, medicinal cannabis use in uh, pain. So in this package, there's a systematic review and meta-analysis, which you might argue is the kind of the pure, if you like, evidence. Uh, And it's also linked uh, to a guideline. And it's those guideline developers that are often the people who are tagging on those extra considerations, but very important ones around feasibility and practicality, acceptability, equity, values and preferences of patients. So, Juan, can you just take us through um, the systematic review and meta-analysis first? Just give us kind of top line what this paper set out to do and what it found. Well, this is a traditional systematic review of randomized controlled trials. They look at a a large PICO question, whether cannabis products uh, work for people with chronic pain, uh, chronic pain 
related or unrelated to cancer. And they um, searched for all types of uh, cannabis products, on, on, but they mostly found THD and CBD, uh, what are the most frequently used in trials. And they included uh, 32 trials, of which 28 they used in meta-analysis, using GRADE, which is a very traditional approach to using now rating the certainty of evidence. And they found moderate to high certainty of evidence that the, the effects of cannabis is, is quite small or very, very small. And um, this has raised some criticism in one of the rapid responses as to whether the certainty of the evidence is, is, is moderate to high or low. But uh, the overall conclusion, it still is, in, on, in terms of effect size, is that it's very small. So, Juan, when you say a small difference in pain, if you go to bmj.com and look at uh, the clinical practice guideline, the rapid recommendation itself, there's a lovely infographic at the top and it summarises some of the absolute differences that you're talking about there. And just to pull out an example, um, in terms of the potential benefits, if you look over one to four months at reduction in pain about 520 people per thousand in the standard care group would have seen a reduction in pain. Whereas that, um, when taking um, cannabis, 620 saw a reduction in pain. So that's about 100 more people per thousand seeing a reduction in pain over that uh, kind of time frame. But how does that fit into the recommendation? Well, the recommendation, they included evidence other types of evidence, evidence related to values, people's values and preferences and what they think about the, the importance of these effects. And people living with chronic pain, even a very negligible uh, change in their, their pain could be meaningful. So that's something that was of value. At the, at the same time, the alternatives, which is the use of opioids, sometimes is not very acceptable for patients. Uh, but at the same time, the use of cannabis products is also... Um, determined by by a certain aspect related to the, the 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 culture around using cannabis and and whether it's legal or not to get it so the decision to use cannabis or not for chronic pain is it's not a quite straightforward it depends on mm. numerous factors and what and, did they uh, recommend in the end well they rec- they make a weak recommendation in favor of a trial of cannabis Non-inhaled, that must be clarified, non-inhaled cannabis, oral cannabis, uh, for chronic pain. And I think that the, 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 the key word there is weak and uh, trial, in the sense that a weak recommendation means that it's not for everyone. It needs to very, very discuss with patients in, in terms of the values and preference with a lot of sure decision-making. And uh, the other key word there is trial. That means that it's not just starting a treatment and, and see for the long term. It's you need to try it first and see how the patient works and, and look at it very closely, especially considering that most of the evidence is very short term. So we need to address what the long term effects of these treatments. And when you say short term, these outcomes were around a month. Is that right? Yes, yes. Very, very short term, considering that chronic pain is something people live with, uh, for years or an entire life. So they're great uncertainties for that. And how does this interface with your practice, Juan? Do you see, you must see patients with chronic pain, but is uh, cannabis products, are they available for you to prescribe or for your patients to access? Would you have different conversations as a result of having read this? 
Well, yeah, and I think that the situation with cannabis is even more complex because the the products that are tested in trials may differ substantially from what patient brings up as alternatives for treatments. That means that patient comes in and say, I have, um, I can get this cannabis oil, and can I use it? So it's a very different question that <laughs> should you prescribe it to me? And and I don't know what's in that cannabis oil that they're, they're getting. I'm not sure how that relates to the evidence I've read, uh, but I need to sit with the patient and try to link the evidence to what they bring to the table. So it's, it's more complex than that. But I think that that this warning and saying, okay, if this is really important to you, we, we, we can give it a try, but we must monitor closely both if it's doing any good to you, but at the same time, if you're suffering any adverse events, because mm-hmm. um, those are also highlighted in the recommendations. See if you feel drowsy or if you, or you're feeling worse in any way, and, 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 and if so, it must be stopped and seek alternatives. How about you, Joe? How does it how does it sit with you? Well, you know, c- cannabinoids and, and medical cannabis is like they're it's undergoing a huge growth in the United States, with a number of U.S. states now authorizing its use, which actually enables you to um, both prescribe it and it can be dispensed dispensed both in addition to, to medically recreationally at very precise dosages, in the sense that. You know, you can go in to a dispensary and buy, you know, a gummy that offers four milligrams or 10 milligrams. And so you, you really can get a much better sense of what you're taking. It's not like smoking a joint behind a high school anymore. <laughs> not that I ever did that, Helen. Um, the, um, but, you know, so, so I, I think what provide you know, it's, it, it, it's obviously controversial. And um, the research actually, given the amount of time that that marijuana, medical marijuana, has been used. The, the research is actually quite small and quite thin. Uh, I don't think so. I, I expect we're going to see a real uh, resurgence in knowledge on how effective this therapy is. And at this early time period, I think one of the greatest reasons to try it, not necessarily to use it for the rest of your life, to try it is that the side effects are transient. And when you look at the alternative therapies that people use for chronic pain, you know, opioids particularly, the the side effects are not transient. You know, there's substantial risk around overdose and addiction uh, that, you know, were minimized for years. And we're obviously learning so much more through the, the, the litigation against Purdue Pharma, the, the manufacturer of OxyContin, and how a lot of clinically important, relevant evidence was suppressed and not released to the general practitioner public as the drug was over-promoted. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, burn me once, right? You know, shame on you, burn me twice, shame on me. I think a lot of physicians are really reluctant to potentially go down that path again. It's, It's all very, you know, and I guess that's why it's interesting, maybe in some ways, having um, this guidance available now, because it's easy to think maybe we should wait until the evidence is a bit clearer, allow sort of more time to pass and come up with a firmer recommendation. But not only does that leave clinicians in the dark, but in making those recommendations and in making the uncertainties clear and the limitations of the evidence, you would hope that that would encourage more evidence generation um, by those who don't have interest in this product um, or those other those other sort of cultural things that have made generating evidence and the 
the availability and sharing of evidence on opioids difficult. Right. And, and of course, it also leaves patients, you know, in the lurch, right? Because now physicians across the world are far less likely to prescribe opioids for chronic pain, right? And so what what do we have in our armamentarium to help patients? You know, and and of course they're looking for things because they need help. You know, they're in pain. They need want to try to lead a more normal daily life, right? And so they're coming with this may help. Can we try this? And so, you know, it's all about setting expectations, recognizing the potential adverse risks, and of course, recognizing the limitations and uncertainty of the evidence. Uh, and ideally, hopefully, you know, our research organizations at, you know, the NIH and the NIHR are going to start funding trials so, so that we can really get to the bottom of this and figure out if it really is effective and not just a recreational product that people enjoy using. It's time for that ever-present COVID-19 update, but that's coming up after this offer for Talk Evidence listeners. Do you have time in your day to stay current with the ever-changing medical information needed to treat your patients? With your busy schedule, it can't be much. That's why you need UpToDate. UpToDate provides accurate, evidence-based clinical information and treatment recommendations in an organised and searchable format so you can find answers you can trust quickly and easily. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on UpToDate in their daily practice. Visit go.uptodate.com talk. That's go.uptodate.com talk and use promo code TALK to save $25 US on your annual or longer subscription. So can you believe, listeners, that we've made it to item number three and we have not talked about COVID? Um, I think that's probably, probably a first on TALK evidence for about 18 months, I should have thought at least. But it is now time for that ever-present COVID-19 update. Um, and the paper that we picked this week is another one from the BMJ, we had a living systematic review on risk prediction scores in COVID-19. It, we published it quite early on in the pandemic. Um, and we can add a link so you can you can go back and have a look. And we talked to one of its authors and it was interesting because a key issue that um, they were facing back then, pulling together the systematic review, was that there were a lot of studies out there, but many of them were small. They didn't include um, enough patients and particularly, they didn't include people all the way back into primary care. Um, so it was really hard um, to make predictions that, that might help um, where the majority of care is given um, back by GPs. And then it felt like everything got a bit muddied further with the advent of vaccines. And did it really make sense to be looking back at risk prediction in a time when people weren't vaccinated? So these authors are trying to plug that gap a bit further and they say that at the moment the picture's a bit complicated further because vaccine studies didn't include some important populations where vaccines might not work as well so particularly elderly people people with complex comorbidities for example those who've had um, solid organ transplants immunosuppressive treatments or autoimmune disorders 
patients who have cancer who've been receiving chemotherapy or radiotherapy. So this is a prospective population-based cohort study using the Q Research database um, in England and linked to data on COVID-19 vaccination, um, on SARS-CoV-2 results, hospital admissions, systemic anti-cancer treatment databases, radiotherapy, national death registers and cancer registries. The risk algorithms included age, sex, ethnic origin, deprivation, body mass index and a whole range of comorbidities and the um, SARS-CoV-2 infection rate. And they found that incidence of COVID-19 death increased with age, deprivation, male sex, Indian and Pakistani ethnic origin. Amongst the comorbidities, death rates were highest for patients with Down syndrome where there was a about 12-fold increase in death. Um, also important were kidney transplantation, sickle cell disease, care home residency, chemotherapy, HIV AIDS, liver cirrhosis, neurological conditions, recent bone marrow transplant, solid organ transplant, dementia and Parkinson's disease. And then there were a range of... Um, I guess, much more common conditions that did increase risk, but to a lesser extent. And some of those included things like chronic kidney disease, blood cancers, epilepsy, um, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, heart disease, stroke and atrial fibrillation. Joe, I wanted to come to you first on this one and say, what um, what were manuscript meeting thinking when, when they saw this paper came th- come through? Were there any interesting discussions which we could uh, share with our listeners? Well, I think there you know there are two main points when we looked at this paper. You know, first that when you look at the risk, it's substantially lower being vaccinated versus not being vaccinated, and you thought that can't get lost. And I, I think the authors have done a nice job of highlighting that. But then the second, I think, most important point of this paper is the risk factors are pretty consistent. Pre-vaccine, post-vaccine. You know, if, if you're vaccinated, the same things that made you at risk when you're unvaccinated are the same things that increase your risk after vaccination. People living, you know, in care homes, people with chronic kidney disease, people with, you know, taking chemotherapy, all of the, the things that make you, uh, you know, more susceptible to a virus like this and, and to have uh, problems if you do get infected or it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not. So the, the most important thing we can do, of course, is reduce our overall rates in a population that, you know, that's through vaccination strategies, that's through, you know, t- quarantining when you are sick and not going out into public, all of those things to prevent people who carry these risk factors, who, you know, are uh, at greater risk uh, from, from getting infected in the first place. And sometimes we worry, don't we, when we see papers at manuscript meeting um, for the BMJ and they're drawn on single country data as to whether they generalise or will travel and be used to an international medical community. Um, speaking as people in such locations, um, Juan and Joe, let's come to you, Juan, first. Um, do you feel that this resonates with you? Is this something um, which which you could use and um, draw information from? Yes, I think that m- the main risk factors for, for COVID, as, as Joe said, um, are, are, are the same. And in, in that sense, I, I think that they translate uh, very well internationally. Perhaps um, the, the, the breakdown on ethnicity might be a little bit different because of the makeups, uh, the ethnicity makeup of each country and might be less rep- uh, representative of, of the population in Latin America. Uh, but in general, it translates well. And, and I think that also pro- uh, <clears throat> this... Um, I really like the examples at the end of the paper that allows us to understand 
the absolute risk that can be estimated from uh, from from these models, uh, which are really reassuring, especially for people at high risk, that they were told that the risks were uh, X percent, and now they can see what they, that means in the context of vaccination, and and they can make more informed decisions. That's really useful. And the authors, as they wrap up the paper and explain what they think this means for clinical practice, um, I think it's really around highlighting those people at continued high risk who might benefit from other interventions or perhaps might be the populations who are targeted with booster vaccinations uh, in the future. And that seems like a good place to close the show. So my thanks to our guests, Joe Ross and Juan Franco. That's all for this month's Talk Evidence. We'll be back next month with more discussions of the latest evidence. Do get in touch if there's anything that you'd like us to talk about on the show. Coming up before then on our podcast channel will be some more well-being and a look at COVID-19 pandemic in South Asia. Do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until then... It's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care out there.